The book of Acts begins with the ascension of Jesus Christ. If you remember the scene 25 weeks ago, we painted it for you. The disciples were standing there, staring in the sky, watching him ascend. And even at that moment, I put before you this idea that many Christians live like this. Jesus is the Christ. Now what do we do? And and yet the Bible puts before us a whole lot more than that. You'd find quickly that angels interrupt that moment and that disciples are no doubt reminded of the last words spoken by Jesus in Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And they would receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. In fact, ten days later, the disciples would come to an understanding of exactly what that meant when the Holy Spirit came and rested on each of them and the church was born. In Acts 3, Peter preaches his first sermon and 3,000 people are converted. Their lives are transformed on that day. Peter and John continue to preach the gospel. Another 5,000 are added to this growing church. Not long after that, in Acts 7, Stephen gives a powerful sermon, walking through the entirety of the Old Testament, applying it to Christ, and is immediately stoned, giving rise to two things, the persecution of the church and the spreading of the church. In Acts 9, Jesus confronts the man who was foremost persecuting the church, a man named Saul, the Pharisee, who has his eyes opened to Jesus Christ. In Acts 10, God shows Peter that there is no unclean, that the gospel is for everyone, and more than that, it takes an opportunity to re-gospel the church, to bring it back to the gospel of Jesus Christ that it is not necessary for the Gentiles to follow traditions or customs, but that all that is required is that you believe in Jesus Christ, that you believe in His death, that you believe in His resurrection. And the church begins to spread all over the earth. We looked at Paul and Barnabas taking the gospel to Galatia. And we looked at Paul and Silas taking the gospel to Macedonia. And then finally, we'll talk about this this morning, you see Paul taking the gospel to what was then called Asia, but you would know as modern Turkey. In less than 20 years, the Holy Spirit, using people who believed in Jesus Christ, had spread the gospel across thousands upon thousands of geographic miles and to tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. To give testimony to that, we sit here this morning in 2017 in Moorhead, Minnesota, in a place the disciples couldn't even conceive of, let alone did they understand our cold. And we believe in Jesus Christ. And we believe it is by faith that we are saved and not by works, not by good deeds. It's faith in Jesus Christ. 
Over the last 25 weeks, we've been walking through the book of Acts, watching the impact that the Holy Spirit has on those who believe. Because that's what the early church was. Regular people who believed in Jesus Christ, who walked in the power of the Holy Spirit, not of their own doing, but trusting Him and being faithful to what He put before them. And in doing so, as we've watched these lives, these empowered lives, the book of Acts has also given us glimpses of the church. And particularly, he gave us two in Acts 2. Luke writes this about the church in Jerusalem. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. He gives us these descriptors of what they were about, how that their meetings looked like. And all came about every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those being saved. Luke writes to us and shows us this picture of this early community. In Acts 6, he gives us a second picture of the early church. Again, the church in Jerusalem. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose about the, against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And with that said, they pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And we see the church begin to organize and have polity that has structure. You see elders, you see deacons, these things get added. And this morning, in the middle of Paul's third missionary journey, which you can read about on your tan piece of paper, we'll be exposed to another glimpse of a church. This time, the church at Ephesus. And there are three things I want us to take into consideration and I want us to take away from the church at Ephesus as listed in Acts 19. So we'll start in Acts 18. Because why wouldn't we? In Acts 18.19, Paul first visits Ephesus, by the way, after getting a haircut. If you don't believe me, read it in the text. Wants to go to the Ephesians with a fresh cut. And the Ephesian church asks him to stay, and he declines, saying, if God's wills, I'll come back. And clearly God did, because in verse, at the beginning of chapter 19, Paul returns, and on this trip, he begins preaching and then baptizes 12 men. All context to see where we're going. Pick it up in 19, verse 8. And he entered the synagogue, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Verse 8 is Paul doing outreach. This was his common practice. 
He walked into synagogues, opened the Old Testament, and began to explain to people who Jesus Christ was, began to persuade them that the whole Old Testament points to Jesus. And it does. This was his form of outreach. Go and reach Jews. This is where he almost always started. Verse 9. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief. Isn't it encouraging to know that Paul wasn't always successful? That he ran across stubborn and unbelieving people? When some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, that's how the church, the Christianity is labeled, before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannaeus. Now don't miss the back half of that verse. Paul is doing outreach, and their outreach had become ineffective, so they withdraw, and he takes the disciples with him. Now he's not talking about the twelve. He's talking about the church at Ephesus. And what that tells us is it wasn't just Paul going to the synagogue. It wasn't just Paul doing evangelism. And when it stops being effective, they try a new venue. In fact, it tells us that they go to the hall of Tyrannaeus. History tells us that there was a lecture hall owned and operated by a man named Tyrannaeus in Ephesians, or in Ephesus. That people would go and rent this thing out from 11 to 4. Anyone could go and rent this hall out and could lecture openly. And people would come during the heat of the day. They would bring their lunch and they would sit and listen to people talk. And clearly, the early church took this on as their mission. Not just Paul, all these disciples ran out this lecture hall. And they shared the gospel. Now watch verse 10. This continued for two years. But that's not the impressive part. So that all of the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both the Jews and the Greek. Now think about that for just a second. In two years, all of the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. All. It's a pretty inclusive term. The last time I looked it up in the dictionary, it meant everybody. That somehow this church had an outreach that was effective enough so that literally everybody heard about Jesus. The Greeks, the Jews, everybody heard about Jesus. That would be the Colossians, the Laodiceans. Those from Heropolis, I can't make that into a city. From Smyrna, from Pergamum, from Thyatira, from Sardis, from Philadelphia. These are all major churches in the New Testament. And the interesting thing about that list is that Paul visits Colossae. Doesn't visit the other ones. So do you know how the Laodiceans hear the gospel? It's the church. It's this Ephesians church that blows up in its gospel witness. It had to have been an extraordinary church. Now, history would also suggest to us that not only is this church pastored by Paul, it's then pastored by Timothy, probably pastored by John after that. 
Uh, there could be as many as seven books of the Bible written to the Ephesian church, including Ephesians, First and Second Timothy. And if you grant John as an author, you would see quickly First, Second, Third John, and potentially Revelation is also written to there, as all seven churches listed are daughter churches to this Ephesian church. Now, how did all those churches get it planted? Because they shared the gospel. Now, the text doesn't tell us that they set out with a comprehensive plan to see that everyone got reached. And the text doesn't tell us that they set out with a strategy to reach every person. Now, the text tells us that in hindsight, two years after the fact, the gospel had been so effective coming from the lives of the believers that all of the residents of Asia had heard. Oh, Calvary, what a crazy vision. What an incredible vision that as a church, if we committed to sharing the gospel so faithfully that literally everybody, and I mean everybody, within several hundred miles had heard the gospel, and not just because there's hundreds of churches around us, but because our church members, those affiliated with us, got so passionate about what Jesus Christ has done in our lives that we talk about Him. That we give Him credit for what He's doing in our lives. That we give Him credit for the blessings that we've received. We give Him credit for transforming us. It's the first takeaway from the church. They were ferocious with the gospel and with planning churches. History bears that out. The second takeaway I want us to grab onto this morning flows from the first. Because I think it causes some of the effectiveness of the first. Starting in verse 11, you'll find a story of the sons of Sceva, a group of Jewish exorcists who travel around exercising demons. This is a strange job, but apparently people had it. What these sons of Sceva find is that the most effective way to cast out demons is to invoke the name of Jesus. It's ironic if you're Jewish. Look at verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by the name of Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. Now let's watch the response of the evil spirits in verse 15. Because demons tend to speak truth. Because they know it. In fact, better than we do. The evil spirit answers them, verse 15, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize. But who are you? Now lean into that for, for a second. Clear that the demon knows about Jesus. But the demon had heard of Paul. As if something that C.S. Lewis writes in the screw tape letters, as if all these demons are somehow organized and like, hey, watch out for Paul, because when he comes, it's bad news. This demon had heard of Paul, but looks at these guys and goes, I know nothing of you. Who are you? This demon seems to get immediately, these are not believers. They have zero authority. Their claim on the name of Jesus Christ means zero 
Let's keep moving. Verse 16. And the man in whom the evil spirit leapt on them. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on him. Guy possessed, jumps on the sons of Sceva, masters all of them, overpowers them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. It's a powerful demon. Whoops up on seven dudes. They run out, beaten, bruised, and naked. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Now this is a wild and crazy story. And we could probably preach some interesting things about this passage. But we're going to glaze over it. Because what happens after this is the extraordinary part. So I want you to see the impact this has on the church. Verse 18. And many of those who were now believers which seems to suggest they didn't believe. They heard the gospel, and now they believe. Many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. Verse 19. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them, the books, and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. The church not only confesses sin, but they repent publicly. I think we've got to own that for a second. The church not only confesses sin, but they repent publicly. Now if you lean into the passage, you would see that the name of Jesus had become so great that they saw power in the name of Jesus to transform lives, so much so that they wanted to leave behind all of the snares and all of the entanglements of sin. They wanted to drop all of their idol worship, all of their pagan practices, everything that was not pointing or leading them to Jesus. They wanted to dump it, and literally, they wanted to burn it. So they gather all of their, we'll call it sin paraphernalia, and they burn it before everyone. Luke tells us this stuff that was burned exceeds 50,000 pieces of silver. Dr. Tom Constable translates to the model equivalent of several million dollars. This church had been pretty invested in sin, wouldn't you think? Several million dollars worth of sin practices. And they not only confess it, they publicly repent. I think this is huge for us to consider. Not that we should have a huge bonfire in our parking lot. But the idea that they would confess their sin. That they would call sin, sin. That they would move away from it. That they would repent. I think this is foreign in our culture. I've pastored for nearly 20 years, and and let me just give you a sense of what my life looks like a lot. People come to me and confess sin, and then do it again, and again, and again, and again, and again. Rare is the time that I spend time with somebody who's wanting to move away uh, from sin. 
rare is somebody really wanting to move away from sin. People are trying to how to figure out how to live with their sin. That's what most people who want to talk to me about their sin are trying to deal with. How do I continue to practice this and live with it? And you want me to make you feel better. I can't. That's not my gift. And I don't want it. What God the Father wants to do in you through the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in your life is to raise high the name of Jesus Christ so high in your life that the sin in your life starts to re, you start recognizing, realizing how worthless it is and what impact it has on you such that you want it so far removed from you that you want it destroyed. You know I worked with college kids for seven years. Working with college students, college students are absolutely incredible for a lot of reasons, but one of the main reasons I loved them is because they were really forward with confessing their sin. I cannot tell you the number of times a a guy would call me and say, hey, can we meet for lunch? And I'd show up. And I'm looking at this guy, I'm not even sure who he is, he goes, man, I've got such a horrid pornography problem. And I'm thinking in my mind, I don't even know who you are. Like, we're going to start with your deep sin. Hey, let's just start with who you are, and then we'll get with deep sin. Do you know how many computers were given to me over seven years? Computers, iPods, iPads. I bet 20 Do you know how many students we had burn stuff because they're like, this device ruins my soul. So they break it in half in my office. Do we do that? Or do we hug it? I'll get better. It's not my master. Who are we kidding? Many of us are total slaves to sin. Who are we kidding? We try to manage sin in our lives. Friends, I think one of the things that made the the gospel so effective out of the church in Ephesus and Acts 19 is the fact that they called sin, sin. They owned it and they repented from it. They moved far away from it so that they looked different. Do we believe that Jesus Christ still changes lives? David Kinnaman wrote in his book, Unchristian, I like to quote it a lot, that the only distinction among Christians in America right now is that we are more likely to buy religious books and occasionally attend church. Those are our distinctives in our culture. I'll buy a a Bible every once in a while. I'll buy a Christian book. If you look through my Amazon, I probably ordered something that Francis Chan wrote. If you looked at my calendar, I might attend church. Overall statistics in the United States suggest that church attendance is not going down so much as people are just going less often. I'm not harping on you guys for that at all. I get it. Life is busy. I got three kids. They get sick. Life happens. But inadvertently, we make Jesus less and less and less and less. And when we do that, the price we pay is that he's no longer worth it anymore. He no longer looks like it could defeat sin. Like sin could be eradicated. Like it could be destroyed. 
like our sin would be worth destroying because Jesus was so great. Calvary, I think the reason the church at Ephesus had such a profound impact on the world was because they took sin seriously and they moved away from it. Now, they had it going for them. Most of their sin was external. It was evident. It was obvious. People could watch it happen. Is that true for us? No, most of our sin is private. Most of it, we hide. Most of it, we don't want anybody to know. In fact, I bet if we took a straw poll, most people are hiding sin. I know that. Because I did it for years. Three years after I graduated from college, I sat down with my accountability partner all through college. Sat down and said, Greg, we just need to have a conversation. I just need to be honest with you. We met weekly for four years, and I lied to you almost every week. And it's killing me. I just wasn't taking it seriously. You know what Greg's response was? He teared up, looked at me, and said, yeah, I lied to you too. This is the culture that we embrace sometimes. We just want to make each other feel better about our sin. And yet this church in Ephesus, where they couldn't hide their sin, they took it seriously, they moved away from it, they burned it. It's possible some of us need to start some bonfires. You want to do it in your backyard? I'm fine with that. You want to do it in the church parking lot? I'm fine with that too. The police or the fire department might have a problem, but I don't. What we need to do as believers in Jesus Christ is to believe in the transformative power of the gospel so much that it can radically change me. And then my radical change becomes evident to the world who looks at me and goes, Ben used to be like this, this, and this, and he's not anymore. Like, what's the deal? Jesus. We need to believe in the transformative power of Jesus Christ in our lives to kill our sin so that that will be a testimony to the world of who he is and what he's done. We've seen two things about the Ephesians church, the Ephesian church. One, they took the gospel seriously and they planted churches. Two, they took sin seriously and they repented. Now watch the impact of this church as we continue on in this passage. Verse 23 and following. About the time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Now Luke's a doctor and he's an extraordinary mind, an extraordinary man with an extraordinary mind. I don't understand his Greek structure in these next sentences. Because they're not simple to understand even and translated into English. The point of this is that the believers were starting to cause some major social issues. In fact, my Bible entitles this section, A Riot at Ephesus. Verse 24. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. Again, a strangely structured sentence. But the point here is that Artemis was a Greek goddess that many in the area worshipped, and that they would attend her temple, 
And it was the common belief of the day that if you gave tributes to Artemis, if you gave sacrifices, that you would be blessed, that the community would be blessed, we'd all do well. And if things are going poorly, it's because we're not worshiping Artemis well. And many folks had designed businesses, they'd created businesses of making false idols, of taking this fake god and making silver statues and selling them to the people. This is Demetrius. Verse 25. These he gathered together, all the makers of these statues, with the workmen in similar trades, other people who create false worship, and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. And then she may be even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Now you can read through how this conflict resolves. But this is the part I want you to see. This is the fact you can't miss. That the Holy Spirit filled believers in Ephesus who formed an empowered church in Ephesus, who preached the gospel, planted churches, and took their sins seriously enough that they would repent of it, had so transformed the city. They'd made so much of Jesus Christ so that those who made false idols, those who made false gods, became worried their business was going away. Could you imagine what that looks like? Could you imagine in our day, in our time, if bars, casinos, strip clubs, internet sites, whatever your idol is, starts complaining? They start going out of business? Hey, we're not doing so good because of this Jesus guy. The impact of this Jesus through these churches, through these transformed lives is causing problems for our business. Nobody comes here anymore. Nobody participates in our false worship. Do you see how sold into Demetrius is? Like, wait, people will stop recognizing how magnificent Artemis is. It's a fake God. It wasn't doing anything anyway. But he's so bought into the foolishness of idolatry. He makes a huge deal of it. His business is fading because the church is effective. Now consider that. A transformed city because of a transformed person in a transformed body. Somebody with the Holy Spirit gathering with people with the Holy Spirit doing the work of the Holy Spirit and the social structure shifts. That's the work of an empowered church. That's the mark of an empowered church. That we would be filled 
with empowered believers. We've walked through this. Ephesians 1.13 tells you that if you've believed in Jesus Christ, you've received the Holy Spirit. You've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. If you've believed in Him, you've received the Spirit. Acts 1.8 tells us if we've received the Spirit, we have received power to be His witnesses. And if we've believed in Him, and if we've received the Spirit, and if we have power, and we gather, then we're an empowered church. Living out the Holy Spirit, are we not? Yes. So this is the call as we walk through the book of Ephesians. That the world wants us to think that this life is about all kinds of things. That it's about building up our 401k and it's about our retirement and it's about comfort and it's about simplicity and it's about ease and it's about patting ourselves. The Bible tells us it's about Jesus Christ. It's about making Him known. It's about the transforming power of Jesus Christ showing up in our lives such as we would let go of everything else, including our sin. And we let the gospel transform us so that the world would see transformed people. And they'd see the power of Christ. God is faithful through this book in guiding and leading believers who trusted in Him. May He be faithful and may we be obedient in following after Him. Let me pray. Father, you give us so many great pictures of your church in this book of Acts. And while we can talk about missionary journeys and the importance of them, Father, for going to all the world is an important task. Father, most of us are going to live our lives in a local body somewhere. Father, may we be a church that's consumed with making you known. Father, could we be a church that preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ in its purity so that we would raise Jesus up such that even our members would consider the cause of Jesus Christ in His name and would want to put away their sin, would want to repent of it. Father, I have no idea how far you want to push that. You may want some of us to burn some stuff. Father, would we be obedient to You? Call us out of our sin. Father, that we could be transformed by Your Spirit, God. You are still changing lives. We trust that. And Father, would You form us into an empowered church filled with believers who believe in You and turn away from their sin. Father, do great things so that this city, this state, this country, and this world would know the name of your Son. It's in his name, the only name that can save us, Jesus.